0: My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at BroBible.com. Today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Cade Onder, who I'm going to start calling Condor. Uh, you can find him over at Comic Book, writing about video games. Also today, not quite as always, but as usual, so far for the last six weeks or so, we're joined by Parrot Analytics analyst
1: industry strategist
0: industry strategist brandon katz our dear dear friend old co-host of the show this week we are discussing the new trailer for black panther wakanda forever which is technically the first full trailer I wonder if it'll be the last as well. Uh, we're talking about the new episode of House of the Dragon. Unfortunately, no interviews for y'all this week. But we do have some video gaming news to get to. So with that, we'll swing it over to Cade's Gaming Corner. First and foremost, CD Project Red, the esteemed. Is it fair to still call them esteemed, Cade? They're coming back.
2: They're making a comeback right now. So I think, I think we can say that. Yeah.
0: CD Project Red, the esteemed gaming studio behind The Witcher trilogy. And is that all that they were known for prior to Cyberpunk? Pretty much, yeah. Still, not bad. Uh, And then, of course, the makers of Cyberpunk 2077 have announced... Was it at some sort of conference or this just kind of came out of the clear blue sky? Some sort of investor thing that they were doing. Okay. So they announced that they are making a new Witcher trilogy, which mm-hmm. I'm not a gaming expert, but I can't remember the last time that they were like, hey, we're making three of these. Like, yeah. I just, I feel like that doesn't happen very often. No. Uh, and they also announced a Cyberpunk 2077 sequel, which even though I haven't played it, I have some thoughts on that as well. Cade, try to explain, try to find a sweet spot between gamers and non-gamers, what you think this means, because I think Cyberpunk 2077's failure is arguably one of the most high-profile gaming failures of all time, yes. so I think that people are generally aware of that, especially considering Keanu Reeves' involvement in it, and The Witcher, especially you know with it now being one of Netflix's most successful shows of all time, mm-hmm. the profile of that has
2: grown as well, so talk to us. It's, it's interesting what you said about games don't do trilogies because when you make like a movie, right, you can project that it'll probably do well enough to make. No, I them.
0: said that they they do them, but they don't but come they don't out from Jump Street. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, because games take a long time to make. Anything can happen along the way. Your whole company can shut down, you know, like they are so unpredictable. They take so long that you don't know if you're going to get to the sequel. So you kind of have to take it on a case by case basis like. The Last of Us, part two, they could have said, you know, we're going to make a third one, too. But at this point, they're still like, we don't know yet. Maybe we'll get there. Uh, so when you come out and say three Witcher games over a six year period is what they said, that's which fucking is fucking absurd. I, They're going to delay some of these. Like, <laughs> <laughs> these are not coming out. You know, that'd be what one every two years. I don't I don't think that's happening. Uh, so they announced those. They announced the Cyberpunk sequel. We don't have many details about any of these things, but. It does show that they want people to know they are investing in their games and hopefully going to take the time necessary uh, to do so. And It sounds to me, if they are doing a, a Witcher game at least every two years, it sounds to me like they will have some sort of foundation that they can build off of, and it's not going to be like rebuilding the whole game over and over again every single time. It'll kind of just evolve over time. Um, it, it's, it's Because very that
0: bizarre. is... Even for a game smaller than The Witcher, that's an aggressive timeline. I mean, yes. you know, even uh, I'm just trying to think like uh, what games have made three. So there's so th- that I've played. So I've played all three Bioshocks. I played all three Arkham games. I think Arkham Asylum came out in 2009 and yeah. Arkham Knight came out in 2015. So that is six years. So that three yeah. games over the course of six years. But those are nowhere near as expansive as what I imagine a next-gen Witcher game should be.
2: And if you think, like, those games came out in a different time. Video games take longer to make now. I mean, it, since Batman Arkham Knight came out, it has taken longer for one new game from Rocksteady. And the time it took them to make a trilogy of games, it has taken them longer to make the Suicide Squad game that they're doing. Right. That speaks to... why. I don't know. <laughs> it's, really, it's, I mean, it's it's a multitude of things. I think they were working on something else at one point, and then oh, 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 so got so it's not but, a okay. you know. But that again, that speaks to the 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 thing of game development. Anything can change. You can cancel a game. You can be moved off of something. It just that's the way it works.
0: And then you put this out in a tweet. And I think this is the thought of everybody that's aware of sort of CD Project Red's last few years. How does a studio who dealt with what was undeniable, a rush into Cyberpunk one, make a move like this. It's, it's feels aggressively ignorant.
2: It is because they announced basically they're doing five games and then they have a couple other ones that they're kind of licensing out to other people that I'm sure they'll cooperate with them on. So that's a lot of projects. And if you think this is in like a 10 year period, maybe 15, if we kind of like factor in some delays uh that's crazy because their whole thing with cyberpunk 27 is they had never made a game like that before you know they never made a shooter they had never made something with cars and stuff like the horses in the witcher games suck ass and so they're like what if we did motorcycles and cars and and guns and grenades and it, it didn't work and you know it's getting there now thankfully but uh to to take all that on is a very scary prospect and they want to do multiplayer in all or at least some of these games Hmm. so um you know i'm i'm nervous and i want to see what they can do because i I, you know they are really good at storytelling their games you know at least with cyberpunk not always quite there but if they can figure it out and they've expanded a lot since cyberpunk came out so if they can work together and and create something special i think i think they have what it takes it just they need to learn to not get in over their heads yeah and, and I will. They just, are. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will
0: just say on the cyberpunk too that like the idea of cyberpunk, at least what it should be, it, I I draw a lot of comparisons in my own brain to No Man's Sky, where it's like in concept you could see how like they're trying to push the boundaries of what gaming can be, and in theory, I'm all on board with whatever they're trying to do. Hundred percent. The way that it completely fell apart the last time and the way that they are sort of rushing back into not only a sequel well i mean it's been a few years at this point but the fact that they're just like hey we're doing all this shit suggests to me that they haven't really learned much but i am on board with them trying to run it back because cyberpunk 2077 is basically as far as i understood like a rpg mixed with gta and like a neo-noir setting so basically blade runner like that sounds fucking sick so like i want that to work out at some point yeah Uh, all right and the the other big piece of gaming news this week something i'm a bit less familiar with first trailer for the dead space remake came out dead space kid what what's good it's like a horror game yeah (laughs) Yeah.
2: because i feel like
0: i've been hearing a bunch about it but i've never played it i never really heard of it prior but now it seems like a big deal
2: yeah so basically this came out kind of after like resident evil really took off like after resident evil 4 and so the series was like really high profile and this guy named glenn Schofield was like i want to do something like that mix it with event horizon and some other like sci-fi shit and solaris and uh create dead space and basically it's it's Sometime in the future, Earth has run out of resources and humanity is going extinct and all these things. And so they are colonizing other planets, mining for resources, and they awaken this ancient alien thing. And uh, this guy named Isaac, who in the first game was not a voice protagonist, but they have uh, in the sequels, they gave him a voice and they're now going back retroactively in the and yeah. giving him a voice. So you're getting a whole new perspective by being able to hear what he thinks throughout all of this. Um so yeah you're you're this like engineer that goes to one of like the the colonizing ships and then finds all of the crew has gone insane and there are these like mutant aliens with these limbs that you have to like The way to kill them isn't just shoot them in the head. You have to cut off their limbs and basically make them immobilize and then like curb stomp them and like sounds dope. I'm
0: too much of a bitch for scary games. It's very scary. It
2: sounds fucking sick. All right, so keep keep an eye out
0: for that. Let's run through some quick hitters and then we'll be breaking down the trailer for Wakanda Forever. Uh, the first trailer for Emancipation, Will Smith's new slave drama dropped. It's hitting Apple TV Plus on December 9th. B, we've not heard from you, since I opened up the show, you had some thoughts on this film about the general population's thoughts on Will versus ours.
1: Yeah. I mean, outside of the film Twitter circles, Apple's clearly not at all worried about general mainstream audiences and their opinions on Will Smith and the hashtag slap and the Oscars controversy. Clearly they don't think it's a thing. And and where I work, Parrot analytics, if you look at Uh, talent demand which basically we sift through piracy and we sift through social media and we sift sift through google searches and wikipedia really his audience demand hasn't suffered that much you know people are still interested in will smith and but his q
0: rating has
1: his q rating has that is a traditional metric for sure i think it's fallen out of fashion you know in in the last like decade and a half or so as we've kind of gotten more advanced metrics, but yeah, long story short, they clearly don't think it's going to impact them both as a subscriber acquisition tool. And more importantly for what Apple's really positioning this for an awards run. And if they think it's going to be a okay for an awards run, clearly, you know, maybe, maybe the, the, the coastal film Twitter bubbles are blowing out the, the long-term ramifications of the Oscar slap uh, relative to kind of what reality is.
0: You know, my first thought when I saw the trailer was, and this is a very not that deep of a thought, but Will Smith really fucked up because <laughs> this <laughs> looks like he could easily be in contention again. Yeah, And had he not assaulted a man live on TV, I think that he would be a favorite at this point. I mean, this looks like a fucking serious movie and he's pulling out all the stops here. He could easily go back to back. It's just
2: like damn. I can't remember did they did they give him the boot or did they never decide on anything? From the he's got a
1: 10-year ban. Yeah 10 okay. he he's, can he's be out. nominated. He can be nominated when oh. he can't attend. <laughs>
2: okay. Oh
0: interesting.
1: Okay. So that
2: does but you have to imagine like that's still just the politics of it all like yeah, if you're I don't not think he's going to if you're banned like they're not probably gonna give you the nomination you know and
1: imagine how bad that looks on live television like yeah will smith but he he's can't attend because yeah. he's banned
0: yeah right <laughs> fucking crazy okay uh michael waldron writer of loki season one and uh multiverse of madness has been tapped to pen the script for avengers secret wars There's a lot of hot takes out there to which I'll just say, shut the fuck up. Um, (laughs) Bill Skarsgård and Lily Rose Depp will star in Robert Eggers' Nosferatu film. Jonas Cuaron, son of Alfonso, will direct the El Muerto movie starring Bad Bunny. That's a Spider-Man spinoff. We live in hell. Uh, Blade is being entirely rewritten by Moon Knight and X-Men 97 writer Bu DeMeo after all of the Blade drama that unfolded last week. Armor Wars is now being developed as a movie instead of a series, and Jonathan Majors is in talks to star as Dennis Rodman in the film 48 Hours in Vegas. Sounds like a blast. All right, let's talk about the first official trailer for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Only the most broken people can be great leaders. Brandon, you came out, I mean, you are probably the most informed person on Coogler on this podcast, so I would definitely like you to start. You came out with sort of a great thread about Coogler's ability to identify perspective and make relatable antagonists and everything that he's good at we're seeing in this trailer. So speak to us on that.
1: I've said on this podcast before, I think Black Panther is the MCU's most sophisticated film. Uh, You know, it's about a leader who defines himself as a leader and, and as a leader by proxy, a politician, and it's about cultural divides and how sometimes both conscious and unconscious bias and childhood trauma informs us all the way through adulthood, and we saw how amazingly well Kugler developed and handled Killmonger, who on the surface is a violent murderer who's down for genocide, but also down, yeah, in, in form. down. Yeah, he's, he's like, "Hey, man, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm down for a little genocide, whatever. <laughs> Me and the boys going out for some genocide. Just a quick hit,
0: yeah. just, just a light treason.
1: And yet, regardless of what his father's plan was, you saw that his father cared deeply about him and to a kid's knowledge, he, he was just murdered for, for no reason. And so to grow up in that kind of shadow, and want to liberate and help Black populations all across the world is understandable and relatable, and maybe not the execution of such, but the motivation behind it. So that's why I always say Killmonger is the second best, maybe even first best villain, you know, back and forth with Thanos in the MCU, in my opinion. And it seems to me that Kugler is trying to craft a very similar archetype with uh, Namor, who is voiceovering the trailer which is very deliberate important choice which is really putting his his point of view very center and we've seen the actor say numerous times he's not the villain of the film which uh not only suggests to me a like they're really gonna do their due diligence with crafting a three-dimensional character with relatable understandable motivations and and probably some moral justification but also says to me and this is a complete side offshoot that uh the Wakandans and uh, uh, the Atlanteans, Namorians, whatever. No, oh, it's uh, it's the
0: nation of Talokan.
1: Okay, cool. That's that's even more badass, honestly. But that they're gonna have to team up <laughs> against a uh, you know, a common evil. And I know some people are thinking Dr. Doom, some people are thinking something else. I don't who? know, but what? that's just a, what
0: who is this something else?
1: I, I can't remember. Yeah, oh, some people gosh. have just been throwing out what the, what the greater evil Mephisto. could be. An alliance, but I, I think that again speaks to what Kugler's is trying to do, which is really say like, hey, even when we're on opposing sides of an issue, we probably have more in common than than we think initially. And I just think that's that's a beautiful sentiment to be, you know, Trojan horsing into a blockbuster movie, and to layer on top of all of that, and then I'll end my rant. The very emotional tribute to Chadwick Boseman and T'Challa, allowing both Wakandans and audiences to grieve for their respective heroes. It's pretty amazing that he looks to have been pulling this off because it's a high degree of difficulty.
0: Hey, do you have any big thoughts before I sort of dive into these points that I have here?
2: Yeah, it was interesting. Like, obviously, like this wasn't going to happen, but I saw the poster. I'm like, oh, yeah, he's Chadwick Boseman's not on it. Of course. Like it just it was very jarring, though, in my mind, like a Black Panther movie coming out and Black Panther is not on it, you know? Not even, um, like, Black Panther. Like, no, the yeah, Black Panther mask, I don't think, is on the poster. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there might be, you know, there's a lot of variants. There might be one that has, like, the new one, but, right. uh, you know, not the old one, which is very sad. It's a great trailer because I wasn't going to watch it, even though I knew we were going to talk about this. I'm like, I'll watch, like, a little bit of it. But then I was watching, and I'm like, they're not giving anything away here. No. You know, like, it's it's a lot of shots from the original trailer or, like, extensions of those shots uh, which I fucking, I love when movies do this. Don't fucking give away the movie. And no. I don't I don't think I know anything beyond kind of what we already knew on a surface level of like, there's a war going on and stuff. So that is amazing. Um, I don't want to, I have other thoughts, but you have your points here that I see. So I will let you.
0: Are you going to work those into my points or?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll, okay.
1: I'll piggyback off you.
0: So B, I think I got this phrase from you, establishing their bona
1: fides. I think so, yeah. I mean, I was yeah. talking about that with Russell Crowe for, for Thor 4.
0: Right. Exactly. That's exactly it. And Namor reeks of that to me. He's see, he, I am predicting a very Thanos beats the shit out of Hulk type vibe for him. A, do you guys agree? And B, if so, who do you think his victim is going to be? I have a bad feeling based on certain shots in the first trailer that Mbaku is going to try to step to him and, if not, get outright murdered because. Tena Huerta has said that Namor is not a villain. He is an antagonist. And I feel like if you straight murder a fan favorite, you're pretty much a villain at that point. But I am, I am seeing some sort of first act, early second act establishing of his Bonifies to show that namor who could fly as well which is a fucking wild little and i love the
1: the first flying comic book character really yeah before he came out the same year as superman 1939 and uh, i think beat him by a few months no shit
0: that's a great fun fact and given how sort of sprawling the cast is and how many targets there could be i'm definitely worried that he's gonna ice somebody
2: yeah, I he, someone's going to probably, like, it's hard to say because obviously we're going to this movie knowing that one character dies, the titular character is dead. Uh, well, we'll talk about that
0: next. I, I don't know to what extent they're going to detail his death.
2: Yeah, and I have a lot to say about that, but uh, it's hard to imagine someone else in the main cast getting picked off too. But that is a great way to establish Namor is not fucking around, you know? Uh, So I'll be very interested to see what kind of power he holds, because, I mean, every time we see him on screen, he he has a very angry face. (laughs) He looks like a guy like that will rip your heart out. Plus, I will just say
0: in both, we've seen it in Black Panther and we've seen it in films like Gangs of New York, right? In old war, there were some versions of it where if the leader gets killed, fight's done. Right. And sure, I think sure. that Namor is trying to become the ruler of the surf, if not the entire surface world of Wakanda, at least. Yeah. And given that we saw sort of the traditional power bequeathment in mm-hmm. Black Panther one, where it's just a straight up one on one battle to the death. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if we see a more jagged version of that in this film.
2: B? Yeah,
1: I, I mean, I would love to see that. I think that's a, a really interesting dynamic. Do they kill Mbaku in a movie that's already going to be somber and emotional and revolving about death around death and how you know empires and 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 groups of of united people move forward after the death of a leader? I don't know. I, okay. I don't know if I see it.
0: But do you see, like, to what extent do you think they try to legitimize him as, like, how do they legitimize him as a threat to the nation of Wakanda? Widely, I mean, it looks like could-
1: he throws a tidal wave at them and is like, flooding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, 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 that that's pretty serious when you when you throw a giant wave at someone and like your streets are flooded. Like, damn. Namor's got some skills. And like, again, Thanos through
0: a moon and he's throwing a wave.
1: I like, uh, I like, you know, I, I think Namor looks in, in pretty cool and intimidating and, and and yet also like this very thoughtful uh, leader. And I just liked the way he did fly, almost like he was like jumping on invisible blocks. Yeah. Like yep. I thought that was really, really well done and, you know, kind of separates him from a lot of the typical flying we've seen in most blockbusters. So, yep. you know, I, I think it's, I let's put it this way. I think it's going to be really easy and really simple and straightforward. To show us how badass Namor is at the
0: beginning of the movie. Yep. Okay. Same here. All right. Uh, and then I had this thought after somebody replied to one of my teats. Tweets. Teats.
1: <laughs> we are um, children.
0: Gonna... <laughs> how to, I mean, so clearly T'Challa's funeral is going to be in this film. I don't think his death is going to be on screen. I'm not even sure his death is going to be explained further than oh died in battle where are your guys feelings and thoughts on how much the death of T'Challa is going to be elaborated on and worked into the plot
2: I noticed there's a very specific shot in the trailer I forget which character it is but a character like walks into kind of like the throne room almost like she's going to break some news like I think we are going to see the character's Reckon with in, in real time yeah, yeah. okay wow. uh, that'd be so, fucking heavy dude you gotta understand yeah absolutely and i, I think because i think if you start the movie like with the funeral it's it's jarring and you can't really get the emotional connection there yet like i think you need to sit with it you that's need a, right because that would be them
0: assuming it. that a 13 12 year old kid remembers chadwick
2: boseman dying what is now over two years ago? Yeah, exactly. So you you need to have that kind of baked into the movie in some way. I don't know. Like I I I I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think it will be happen. It will happen because I think Cougar may be more sensitive about this. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see an armored Black Panther. We don't see Chadwick Boseman, but we see what is supposed to be him in the costume, doing whatever. And that's how the movie opens and we, we see something, maybe you don't see him like literally get like stabbed or whatever, but the implication is there that's, Do you
0: think that there's a chance that I think there's a what chance. is meant to be the body of T'Challa is in this film.
2: I, I think there's a chance. Okay. I, I, I don't know because it, like, I really don't envy the position Ryan Googers and like, how do you, right exactly you begin? That's the problem. It's, yep. it's the rest of it. I don't. It's it's still hard, but I think the rest of it comes much easier than how do you start this story because you have you have the the this big missing piece and I, that is very complicated and so I think you either you have to give some sort of visual context to this situation. I don't think you can go without saying, "Oh, he's just
1: dead." It's right.
2: Like, yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. B
1: I just have a feeling they're going to open on the funeral services and, and the kind of mourning and, and the collective grief. And I don't know if we'll ever get a straightforward, specific, exposition-heavy answer. I think we may just know, you know, he passed.
0: I do take Cade's point, though. For the emotional arc to work, I do think, like, if they only say it in passing, they are relying on the audience's real-world knowledge of what happened, which is viable. of people who go into that film are going to know that. But structurally, as a movie, I do think it would be far more emotionally impactful if, and I had not thought about this, but if there's sort of a cold open but then that would sort of require his voice, which I'm not sure that they could pull off at this point. But if there was some sort of cold open, which if not even showing him in the battle, like showing him go off to that battle, whatever, I do think it would make the whole arc that much more emotional, but we've got to move on from here. One thing that I think I could see coming here, depending on how much screen time she has. I think Angela Bassett could be in line for a best supporting actress nomination. I feel like Black Panther, the franchise is uniquely appealing to Academy voters. I think Angela Bassett is considered to be one of the greatest alive. She is clearly being given some scenery chewing scenes. So I think if she's on screen enough,
1: that could be season, baby.
0: Yeah. I think that 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 could definitely happen. I really don't, need you guys to touch on that at all. The final point here is, and we've talked about it on this show before, so we don't need to dive into the theory of self, just how likely do you think it is? Dr. Doom, I think that the strongest case is that the wakandans and likely the talocans are not morons and wouldn't just wage war on each other for no reason that should suggest to me that strings are being pulled somewhere the rumors about doom have been out out in the cosmos for at least a year at this point so i'm probably at like a 7.5 yeah
2: i i think at
0: least a 7.5
2: i think you know it's it's weird to talk about but like it's an emotionally charged movie. And if you were a villain like Dr. Doom and you know these characters are very vulnerable, you can manipulate them to acting on their emotions. Absolutely. And, and uh, that is a very interesting take. Because like, like you said, like it makes sense for these underworld characters to want to rise up and take on the most powerful nation. Because once you take Wakanda, you can take anything. They have all right. the technology, right? Yeah, exactly. That's all you need. So but I, I think there is more to it beyond that. I think they all need a motivation to clash. And right now we don't know what that is unless Namor killed Black Panther, which I don't think is the case. Otherwise, this guy would not be saying, oh, my character is actually a hero. You know, you wouldn't say that. So uh, so I, I do think that there is if it's not Dr. Doom with someone else, I don't know who it would be. But I, I do think that is a, a likely theory.
1: I agree. I think it's very likely uh, a If we're talking about the real life dynamics of this movie, how do you, you know, push forward from the death of a star, which is which is unprecedented in 10 pole blockbuster history. It's happened, unfortunately, in TV shows many times where TV kind of figures out. But for a 10 pole franchise, I've never seen it before. So
0: rest in peace, John Ritter.
1: Yeah, uh, 100 percent. Um, so I, I, Cade
0: I th- nods, Cade, you know were like that. five when, <laughs> when that happened, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I,
1: I think a, a really emotional, you know, wonderful goodbye to, to Chadwick and, and to Chala, matched with, okay, now we're looking forward, the introduction of arguably one of the most iconic mm-hmm. villains in, in pop culture, not just superheroes. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. It pairs nicely. And then you got to remember, Ant-Man 3 is the next MCU film, if I'm not mistaken. That's going to introduce mm-hmm. Kang. You are is, correct, Ant- sir. A distinct tie to the Fantastic Four. So to introduce uh, Dr. Doom and, and kind of maybe set up a, a little bit of a through line before his maybe proper unveiling, where right? Like,
0: like we're not gonna get a him masked up and suited, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like,
2: yeah,
1: exactly. So I, I just think the pieces are in place from a real life dynamic and from an MCU plotting dynamic to to say that that makes a lot of sense. And again, you guys have mentioned it too, and we've mentioned it. The plot of Black Panther two with Namor likely coming to this, you know, to the light, for lack of a better term, it makes a lot of sense.
0: All right. On that note, we will take a quick break. And when we come back, we're breaking down House of the Dragon, Episode 7.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All
0: right, and we are back. House of the Dragon, Episode 7, Driftmark. Fun fact, this was the first episode that they shot. You can kind of see why, considering so many main characters are in the same room or same space. I'll I'll run through a quick recap, then we'll get to sort of a beat-by-beat breakdown. King Viserys and his court attend Lady Lena's funeral in Driftmark. Rhaenyra and Daemon reunite and are physically intimate. Princess Aemon claims Vagar as his dragon, leading to an altercation with his cousins and nephews in which Lucerys slashes Aemon's eye. Queen Alicent demands that Lucerys's eye be gouged (laughs) out as retribution. When Viserys refuses... A distraught, Allison attempts to attack Luceris, who is a kid, mind you. Uh, she struggles with Rhaenyra and ultimately cuts the princess's arm after claims that Rhaenyra's children are bastards. Viserys uh, decrees that anyone questioning his grandson's legitimacy will have their tongue cut out. Reinstated at his hand to the king, Otto Hightower privately tells Allison they will soon prevail. Rhaenyra and Damon unite. Against Allison and her supporters, Laenor is apparently murdered by his lover, Sir Carl, Spell with a Q. Way to go, George. You really nailed that one. Uh, Sir Carl Corey with Princess Rhaenys and Lord Corlys, believing the found charred body is Laenor's. Meanwhile, Daemon and Rhaenyra are married in old Valerian tradition to continue the pure Targaryen bloodlines uh, with their respective children attending the private ceremony following his fake death. Lenor with a shaved head secretly flees Driftmark with Sir Carl. Brandon, while I cast my breath, any big thoughts?
1: <laughs> uh, you know, I I'm interested to talk about the twist because there seems to be uh, differing opinions behind that. And I'm, I'm, so I'm interested to get into that.
0: The twist being that Lainor was not actually killed. Yes which I, from as far as I understand, is a pretty big diversion from the book. Can't remember. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So let's start with the funeral cocktail hour, which basically mirrored what they're like in real life. Just a bunch of kind of awkward groups having their own chat. Otto is back his hand, and basically everyone is creeping on one another with sort of distant stares. Some of the main things that I found from this is that, and I brought this up last week, wherein I was confused as to why all of the high tower Targaryen kids suck. They are clearly positioning. Rhaenyra and Daemon's kids to be the more sympathetic children in this whole civil war. And I find that to be clear in this scene. But I guess my main takeaway from this Valerian funeral is that after having them be so mythologized in thrones. I think it's awesome to get to see them in their pomp here, which makes me all the more nervous that we see none of them in the Thrones world, which makes me aware that it, that this civil war is going to end terribly from them. But just to get the sort of contrast of the very sea-heavy Valerian culture up against... The obviously fire-obsessed Targaryen culture is in a show that's ultimately going to be about civil war. Just a nice sort of aesthetic and thematic contradiction to further crystallize what is becoming two very clear sides.
1: And it's made all the more interesting by the fact that they share their ancestral home of Valyria. And yet the two houses couldn't be more different, both in, in kind of where their power lies in, in what they want overall, how their customs and culture goes. So it's so interesting to see them be really the last of, of a nearly extinct nation yet also have so much drama and conflict within themselves. It it is a really good juxtaposition.
0: And then I found that the opening funeral cocktail hour mirrored sort of the later blowout dinner scenes, but I love the way that it was changing, pers- like constantly changing eyelines and perspectives, which I thought was a physical sort of representation of the ever-changing power dynamics in the world and in the room and in this family. And sort of, we, you know, we've known Miguel Sapochnik for his work on, I think he did Hard Home. I think he did Battle of the Bastards. He
1: did I like the th- biggest episode.
0: I, yeah, I, I think he's done, yes. But to sort of see him also have the skill to imbue what is, again, what Thrones was known for, conversations in rooms and changing eye lines, to have him imbue every moment of that with such drama, made for me what was probably the best episode yet, boasting some of the series' best scenes yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, this episode revolved entirely around politicking drama, which, as you said, that, that is game of thrones calling card you know that is what this show is about and this is why it's also accessible to non-fantasy fans because it's it's really light on the fantasy and much more about political jockeying power struggle i mean
0: except for that scene where the where the child rides a dragon that's the size of a building but
1: i mean you know that's supplementary that's (laughs) but that's not the main (laughs) thing we'll get to that but just overall uh yeah this was the worst shiva ever it just looked horrible And as you said, the opening is so good because every single character, whether they're involved with the main power uh, struggle or not, every single character has a very dramatic, very juicy and, and scintillating subplot with someone else there. So it is all of the ducks in, in one area being pitted against e- in each other and trying to not only support or defend their, you know, family's alliance, but also navigate their own personal bullshit. And what I loved about this too, is that
0: even though it worked on a dramatic and thematic level, I also found that they played the shifting perspectives and eyelines for laughs too. Maybe it's just me and my fucked up sense of humor, but I noticed when Raynera sort of walks into the party, her first look is at Damon. Yeah. And then it cuts... To Allison looking at her disgusted, like this horny bitch is still trying to fuck her uncle. And then later, so I was like, all right, that's funny. I mean, I don't know if you picked up on that too or not, but and then later, Kristen Cole goes up to Allison and is like, Fucking Laris is really <laughs> creeping over there, and it cuts to Laris just being the most Stereotypical, like, creepy Character in the corner, and I don't know If those were meant to be played for laughs But I found it funny
1: <laughs> uh, Yeah, I don't know what it was meant to be, but I Legitimately, I wrote down here it was like when the popular girl walks into like a high school scene and notices that like some dynamics have changed just by watching other people. That's what I got. Like, I don't mean that in a critical way. I actually mean it in a really good way. Like, That was effective. That was entertaining. This is, you're conveying so much information with very little dialogue. It's impressive direction.
0: Yeah, so then I'd say the next big plot beat is that the Valerians reeling and grieving the death of their daughter are, I find that the queen who wasn't is perhaps the most emotionally intelligent character on the show. And she sort of calls out Corliss for his bullshit jump street. Corliss is adapting this very Tywin-esque, legacy, 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 that's all that matters, blah, blah, blah. So Corliss wants to betroth Driftmark to Rhaenyra's kids, despite the fact in his heart of hearts, he knows that they are not of his blood. Whereas, uh, and her name is, oh God, Rhaenys? What?
1: His wife is Rhaenys. And, Rhaenys. And the granddaughter that she wants to uh, give it to, her, I think, is B- Bela.
0: So yeah, Rhaenys wants to give Driftmark to Daemon's kids knowing that they're blood. And they basically have the ultimate Thronesian debate of sort of what does the world remember? Do they remember name or blood? Now, I kind of see both sides, right? Because I agree with Rhaenys on a spiritual level, but on a tactical level, I agree With Corliss, and I find that given their C domination, they are setting up the Valerians and whichever side they take, given that they have quote unquote kin on both sides to be a key player in this whole thing. So B, where do you sort of stand on their conversation? Is is there one of do you agree with one of their point of views?
1: It's a little unfair because we have hindsight and context for the whole franchise, but it's funny to me that a nobody realizes that ambition gets you killed in this world a hundred percent of the time. And B that she might, she might. It's you what know, Rhaenys does. Rhaenis. Yeah. 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 And it's funny to me also that the ambition of some of these Lords and the ambition of like an Apple or an Amazon, some of these mega companies are exactly the same. It's never enough to be filthy, stinking rich. There's always like, no, we want to make even more money. (laughs) The the Valerian household, Corlys, is the richest family. The richest family in all of the seven kingdoms. And they also know that their grandkids, legitimate or not, are going to inherit the Iron Throne and that their other grandkids are the son of a a prince and are going to be just fine too. So, I mean, when is it enough? He wants more, Corliss wants more than that. And by doing that, he's putting his entire family at risk. So I, I side with uh, Rhaenys because I think it's a little bit more realistic. It's a little bit safer. And, you know, I'm someone who, like, I don't want to rule the world. I just would be happy to be, like, one of the one of the last men standing. And that, that's about it. So it, it's funny to me that he, again, we have context in hindsight. It's like he, he doesn't know what he's doing to his family long term, probably.
0: I think I, it makes it so interesting to me too. And as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, they're the only black house of note.
1: I mean, they they changed that for the show, which I think is a good change.
0: Oh, okay. Right. Because I think that that makes it far more fascinating. Like his pursuit of power being sort of a look down upon person in this culture adds more layers to it. That's beyond... You know, Theon Greyjoy being like, "I just want to be the most powerful white kid in the," ra-. you know what I mean? Like he's also is- a
1: self-made man. He well, earned his fortune where everyone inherited. Exactly. In.
0: exactly, exactly. So I think that even though there is sort of a power-hungry esque nature to Corlys, it's more understandable than most Thrones characters we've seen so far.
1: It is, and I'm digging the sea snake for sure, and I love that this man does not age. Like, Viserys is just losing it every time we check in on him, and Corlys is like, no, nah, man, I look good. Yeah. And I love that. I just think, again, we know what ambition and craving more does in this world, and it is never anything good.
0: All right, so next big plot beat is Rainera and Daemon fuck. They literally, and it sucks that, like, uncle and niece, because they're... Chemistry is legit, and I—I I mean, I think that's kind of the point, right? Like Game of Thrones sets out to make you feel uncomfortable as hell, but they can't keep their hands off each other for shit. They start to fuck immediately. While Eamon... what's the word? Conquers Vagar? Like what verb would you put to that?
1: I mean, claims? he bonds with him, I guess.
0: What? He bonds with him. Bon- so Amon bonds, claims, steals, whatever you want to call it, Vagar. Lena's former dragon, the biggest in the realm. Once he returns from stealing said dragon, he and Rhaenyra's kids fight with him. So it's Rhaenyra's kids and Daemon's kids versus just Aemon. They all fight. Aemon loses an eye. And then this leads to what is the set piece of the episode and perhaps of the season so far. And this is why I have faith in House of the Dragon. Because as I said to you last week, Game of Thrones didn't do a big battle until season two. And yes, they cut off Ned's head in episode nine of season one and we still may get that but the fact that they were able to deliver what I think amounts to a set piece but a dramatic set piece that's all dialogue. It, it was a and, stage play. And camera work. Exactly. Exactly. And in a literal sense, staging. A lot of what makes the scene work is where everyone's standing yep. and where the camera is and where their eye gaze is going. So all, cues. Yeah. So all of that culminates in the gigantic blowout scene that effectively draws the lines in the sand of the two sides of the civil war that we're going to come to see in this show. I think it's perhaps the best scene so far in the series. We'll sort of detail what exactly goes down in a bit, but be talk to me sort of about reuniting of Damon and Rhaenyra and what you thought about that and or both what you thought about the Vagar scene. Because they kind of unfold simultaneously.
1: Yeah, I think that the parallel editing is is a very deliberate choice. You have the joining of the dragon, both in a literal and kind of sensual sense. You, you've you got Rainier and Damon, who, again, shouldn't be together because it's super gross, but are <laughs> to be together and are the best, you know, power. Couple. That's why
0: you come to that podcast for the in-depth analysis. <laughs> Incest equals super gross. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Very articulate and eloquent. So you have them finally coming together after all this setup. And parallel, you have uh, Aemond con- bonding, conquering, claiming the dragon coming together for-, for his ascension. So in both sense, it is a level up, a power level up for both of them and very you know thematically intertwined. I got to say Amon is a little shit that I would not mind kicking his butt myself, but my God, is that kid tough. Like that was bad ass. And I, I mean, again, he's a horrible person. He, he punches his, his female cousin for like really no reason, but I mean, he goes one on four Pretty much does a good job and then takes a a blade to the eye and just handles it like a champ.
0: Let me just say in his defense, and I am not advocating for the punching of tiny girls, but I will just say that this is a kid who was bullied his whole life and like was coming off the high of arguably the greatest moment of his life. So his emotions are all over the place in that moment. Now I'm not defending, nor am I taking his side, even though I am vaguely on his team. but What I will just say is that like, there was no worse moment for him to be caught at than, than that one.
1: I think, you know, you say he's, he's been bullied and everything and, and that should. By his own family. Yeah. And, and in theory that should enable him to be more sympathetic to other people, but really as the old therapy adage goes, hurt people, hurt people. And I genuinely think It's a commentary on on leadership, too, and and rulers, because you have all of these horribly privileged uh, children being raised by these, you know, horrible people who have serious agendas and and social status climbing and and power hungry motivations. And so, you know, the trauma trickles down and again, hurt people, hurt people. And and he it's setting him up to grow up. Realize,
0: realize, realize. What? Real eyes, real eyes, real lies. Have you ever heard that before? It's like, it. like it's it. like a very corny, like white girl-esque
1: quote. Right. Another, another like kind of you know, therapeutic mantra. Exactly. Uh, and, and so I think that was commentary in and of itself that every generation is inheriting the issues, the problems, the trauma, the drama, the conflict of the one prior. And it goes back to Game of Thrones where. Daenerys, who unfortunately couldn't live up to her own words, was in a room with Tyrion and Theon and and Aura Greyjoy and a couple others and said, all of our fathers were bad people who left the world worse than when they came into it. We're not going to do that. And you want to see someone break the cycle, as she also said, break the wheel in that sense. But yet there hasn't been someone who can emerge and and do that consistently. (laughs)
0: Now we're at the climactic set piece. I don't really have notes. I'm just going to sort of free bullet here. Eamon comes in. eye all cut up. He's like, ma, check this shit out. Eyes gone. Alicent, who has spent 15 years building up resentment towards Rainera, because she got to fuck Sir Kristen Cole and Damon and Harwin while she's been having decaying Viserys lie on top of her for the last 15 years. She gets lit demands retribution, eye for an eye, literal eye for an eye, says, I want your son's eye, asks Kristen Cole to do it for her. Cole thinks about it, takes a step towards her, but then it's like, eh, I'm good. Allison is like, all right, fine, I'm going to take shit into my own hands, grabs the cat's claw dagger out of Viserys's belt, which is the weapon that was eventually used to kill the, the Night King, goes for Rhaenyra's kid. Rhaenyra stops her, Kristen cole tries to intervene but damon stops him remember in the pilot when they joust cole beats him so i know that's going to come back around at some point
1: rematch 15 years in the making
0: yeah absolutely allison gives a speech like you know you've basically just been like slutting it up and having fun for the last 15 years while i've had to worry about the realm and succession and family and duty ba 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 rain era kind of hits her with a dope line which is true she's like now they see you for as you are she regardless of whether i could see in the abstract that she might be a bit right you simply can't demand for a child's eye in public that's just that's just a no you know i've
1: been like you know relatively sympathetic to allison this whole time but just you lost the pr battle on this one girl
0: Yes, absolutely. So, Raynera tells her, now they see you for as you are. Allison accidentally or on purposely cuts her arm. One-eyed Eamon walks up and is like, ma, it's all good. I've got a dope dragon now. I tend to agree. I do think that that is a fair trade. Otto is like, damn girl, I didn't know I had it in ya. Now we're fucking cooking with gas. This realm is ours. That's basically it, right? So I like, know was-, was
1: basically that viral clip of Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan in like 2013 when Chris Paul got <laughs> traded to the Clippers and they're like, woo <laughs> yeah. That was Ono seeing his daughter in action.
0: So all right, B. I mean there's you know, what are your thoughts on this scene, which I think is perhaps the best scene of the series so far.
1: Yeah, like we said, I think this is a wonderful stage play. It is so high tension, so dramatic, so much going on, so many political undertones and gets to the heart of what Thrones does well, which is muddy who you want to root for, who you want to hate, muddy who, you know, what what is the proper course forward in a very delicate political situation and project a bunch of different futures all at once. So I think it's a really, really well done scene that, like you said, sets the stage by firmly drawing the sand, the lines in the sand. Like Alliances are set, conflict has now literally drawn blood, however tame it might have been in the grand scheme of things. It's on like Donkey Kong to the break of dawn, starting now.
0: And the only thing keeping it at bay is Viserys having nine lives. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Nine lives, one arm. I mean, the second
0: he dies, it's fucking
1: it's on. on. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we got to assume that's coming soon. We know from the trailer for next week, there's another time jump coming, which is going to be really cool to see the kids as like older teenagers, younger adults. Yeah, I think but that's
0: at what extent is it whiplash?
1: Another one.
0: No, I know. But <laughs> and like, I get it from like a narrative standpoint, especially if they want the season to go, you know, I mean, show to go five seasons like i understand sort of the need to lay decades long of resentment and strife and like the mechanics of doing so but like the audience is becoming self aware at this point and not just like movie tv nerds like you and i like even the regular people are like what man new, new- those normies new actors
1: again so i'm I, not I, agree. I i think it's too many time jumps my Again, I don't know because they are futzing with the timeline so much that I can't really give you a realistic summation from the books. But my guess from a narrative character development standpoint is they have to stick with this upcoming timeline, which is probably going to be like another five year jump or so for a little bit, like into season two. Like that's that's what I believe is going to be the case because so now we're mostly adults.
0: So you think that like the Amond that we're meeting next week is the one that we're going to have for a bit?
1: I, I think so, too. And this guy, I cannot remember for the life of me what his name is, where I saw him in first. But he's a good actor, too. He's oh, gonna OK. Play adult Eamon. So I, I genuinely think this is where we hit the brakes a little bit in terms of the time jumps. And like, like we just said, blood's drawn. It's on now. So this is really where the fire is lit. And I don't know, you know, who's going to die next. But it does seem as if, this is the beginning of the central plot. Why we're here, why there's a show. So I, I yes, I think we're probably done. And I, I don't want those words to come back and bite me, but <laughs> that's, what, that's what my my gut is as someone who's, you know, basically studied television their whole life.
0: And then final plot beat, B, unless you've got any sort of book insights, this'll do it. Rhaenyra and Damon fake the death of Lamor and get married in traditional and a traditional Valerian ceremony.
1: Well this is what I wanted to talk to you about. I didn't see it as that way. I think Rhaenyra and Daemon absolutely plan to have him killed despite the fact that you know Rhaenyra does have some affection for him.
0: Yeah, but they subvert the whole but the but before they plan killing him, Rhaenyra tells him like don't be ashamed of who you are. You're a great guy, but blah, blah, blah. so like for her to flip to killing that person would be a villain turn.
1: There's nothing in the show that suggests that she's a good person. She hasn't done anything heinous. That is true. But there is nothing in the show that suggests she's a worthwhile ruler. She has lied to everyone. She has alienated potential allies. She's she's betrayed people. She wants to fuck her uncle. You know, like there's nothing in the show that makes her a hero. So you say a villain turn. Well, maybe from like a, a person who's a net, you know, like a push, a net equal, nothing, not a hero, not a villain to, to slightly worse. I think, we know Damon is an unhinged psychotic. I genuinely think at this point, particularly given the political elevation that our unbelievable stage play just caused, I think she's ready to fully embrace doing whatever it takes to secure her throne. And I think, the again, one of the major points of house of the dragon and not sanitizing characters like they did in game of thrones is to be like oh no they're all awful and none of them are worth rooting for but yeah there, there's a there's a division to camp you know i've talked to people who are like no no they definitely wanted him dead and i've talked to people who are like no no they definitely engineered his fake death
0: so you think Lenor and carl with a q went rogue
1: I, that's what i believe i think the boyfriend saved him
0: but why would carl cross damon
1: I think Carl just loves Lenor. Okay.
0: All right. I have not consider. Oh, so you see him being alive not as Rainera doing a good thing, but a potential loose end.
1: Yeah, it's Chekhov's dragon. Remember, he's a dragon rider. The dragon's gonna follow them just out of intuition to uh across the the across the narrow sea. And I absolutely think that's gonna come back to bite Rhaenyra in the ass.
0: Okay. Or roast
1: her, whatever. whatever I'm on board.
0: I can't, you, I can't believe you didn't tweet that yet. I've not seen that take out there. Well, I guess I should get to tweeting after this. You should. You should. That's a fucking sick take. I'm totally on board. I agree 100%. It is absolutely Chekhov's Dragon rider. Chekhov's dead
1: husband. That's absolutely what it is. And, you know, maybe I'm overthinking it because that's always possible. It just seems out of character for the show that we've gotten so far.
0: Well, what does Damon tell him to do specifically? Doesn't quick he death. tell him quick death, but he also tells him witnesses. And there's a very sort of performative element to their battle. You know what I mean? Carl's like, you've always looked down upon V. Ah, uh, unguard." you know? He doesn't literally say that, but that is sort of the vibe that they're putting off. So, wow, I'm fascinated by that theory. I love that
1: we'll see we'll see if he if he pops back up and maybe will. maybe maybe they'll wait oh
0: no of course he's gonna pop back up of course he's gonna pop back up it's just in what context
1: sucks that he had to cut his silver hair because those things are badass
0: sucks for the character great for the
1: actor and no more wig
0: yeah absolutely all right everyone's favorite category a song of rising and falling who are you rooting for this week Brandon Cass you're number three
1: I'm bringing back one that I said before, the children of all these people, they are just <laughs> being forced into becoming horrible people. How
0: do I reach these geese? I
1: see exactly. Good <laughs> South Park reference. And it just boggles my mind too that like, you know, I hate the Trump family, but I have to believe like Don Jr. loves Eric Trump to like a certain degree, but like Eamon and Amon, or, you know, he seems to like hate his brother and they hate the sister. And then the other, the Harwin bastards are kind of like, trying to figure out their place and they're making fun of each other's cousins. Like why are not you guys like a little bit closer? It makes no sense to me. All
0: right. My number three character or entity that I'm rooting for this week is Rihanna's Savage Fenty lingerie brand. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw, but Olivia cook has
1: oh.
0: Olivia cook is now a Savage Fenty ambassador and put out quite the social media campaign to sort of coincide with her rising game of Thrones fame. Fantastic marketing and this is just like a genuinely non-horny thought fantastic like marketing structure to like roll this video out the week that her character gets sort of her big thrones moment you know what i mean like that was absolutely planned uh and it's quite the video okay Uh, number two brandon who are you rooting for this week
1: i've got two here one's a joke and one's the real one uh the joke is i am rooting for viserys's last red blood cell to fight off all everything that's going on in there cuz that that thing is working over time and respect to that thing uh my my real one is uh Rainis uh because the queen
0: who was fought. not yeah, yeah okay
1: cuz she's a real one she is a real one. She had an opportunity at power it was snatched away from her rather than growing bitter and, and, and savage about it and plotting. She is just trying to protect her family. She's trying to enjoy the time they do have. She seems to she seems to have a respect for the realm. We haven't really seen any sympathy or any any kind of how does she feel about taking care of people and making sure like we're not at war? But she she does seem to have a respect for the mantle. And we saw in and like episode,
0: humankind in general.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and then we saw in a previous episode, no matter how sharp-tongued she was with Rainier when Rainier was a teenager, she was trying to impart some like hard lessons that, that Rainier needed to hear. So I, I think she's someone who sees the big picture and is and to my knowledge, is not evil and is trying to stay out of this conflict, which is probably the, the move.
0: So mine number two to echo yours just all like it, last. And right. she
1: just to her knowledge lost both of her kids. That sucks.
0: Yeah, yeah. And she still like has a level-headed point of view of uh, the world. Okay, my number two, to echo yours, just like last week, we're having the same train of thought. My number two th- entity that I'm rooting for this week is the death of Viserys, because I'm a kind man who wants to see him put out of his misery. My dude <laughs> is like, I mean, I can't even think of a verb for it, other than like decaying, rotting, withering he is falling apart in every sense of the word and the poor guy is like when he says during that sort of uh big set piece at the end we're a family i got big walter white vibes like we're in the walter white mold it was played more in like a horrifying way It's the same sentiment of like you're meant to feel bad for this guy in the sense that like they were trying to help their family, but it's their actions that have unraveled them completely. And that is sort of what I got from this scene. He is hanging on by less than a thread. I think he dies this week now that they've sort of overtly confirmed that his beating heart is the only thing from stopping full-blown civil war from exploding. I think that we see him die this week, and for his sake, I'm glad.
1: (laughs) I don't want him to see what his family and house, you know, becomes.
0: B, your number one person, thing, plan, plot, theme that you are rooting for this week.
1: Rooting for the goddamn Nightwalkers to just end humanity. (laughs) (laughs) It's a joke, but it's also true because, again, I come back to it. House of the Dragon is showing us that There's nobody worth rooting for. Up to this episode, I would have said Allison, who I've said many times has been thrust into a situation by her father, basically pimped out in order to improve her her family's station, has been ignored essentially by her husband, who is the king, has been lied to by her best friend, who has been uh, uh, left alone because her father got fired in a very dangerous situation where she has to fend for herself, so she was a sympathetic character, but now she just swings way too far the other way. And essentially, the last two episodes, telling her kids, and, and particularly Amon who's going to be king, you're basically going to have to kill your cousins. And then this week, trying to physically herself gouge out a child's eye and immediately you know blaming everybody else. So she swung so far to the opposite direction, which, again, I think is the commentary of the show. That... Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. All that good stuff. So yeah, Nightwalkers just end civilization. We're not worth it.
0: All right. And my number one person, character, theme, plot point, whatever that I am rooting for this week is...
1: Oh, I wish you guys could see Eric dancing right now. <laughs> my number one character this week is fucking
0: Otto Hightower. Uh, my course. boy. Listen, my guy, as I've been saying, and this started out as a bit, <laughs> but but the take is growing stronger and stronger each week. My guy installed his daughter as queen, got quote unquote fired, right? And what was his punishment for being fired? A 10-year retirement. And w- w- what does he do? Gets his old job back. Comes back, and not only is his daughter still queen, not only does she have two male sons who have a fantastic claim to the throne, but he's got the biggest dragon on the realm on his side, and he didn't have to lift a finger. And as I made a South Park joke earlier with the how do I reach these kids, I tweeted out a meme this week of Otto Hightower's four-point plan. That is A, betrothed daughter. B, acquire dragons. C, cash out and be bro down. And that is what my guy is doing. He has the king wrapped around an emotional and mental string, right? He's back as the hand, even though he got fired, the king doesn't have his wits about him whatsoever. He's still powerful enough to tell the, like he's still using his daughter, the queen as a pawn, telling her what to do, go to him, do this, do that. And I just still find that his non-violent methods, especially when you look at what Rainera and Damon did this week and what Laris has done and what even Alicent has done, Otto has not expressed that violent outburst nature. Now, I know that this take is going to age like milk. And at some point, either A, he's going to get his throat cut while he sleeps or B, do something diabolical. But right now, he strikes me as the shrewdest and most tactile. And I'm, as Damon says this week, we're all capable of depravity. And I'm sure he is. But he is at least reserved in it. When Allison is going at Rayner with the cat's paw, I'm sure he says it for political reasons. But even he has the wherewithal to be like, hey, daughter, could you drop the knife? Could you not? Take out this child's eye in front of a room full of a hundred people. So I just think that Otto's, he's like a virus, right? Like he's been infecting, he's been quietly and under the scenes and infecting this entire world and this entire story. And I don't think people have realized. And now that they have Vagar, and once Viserys dies and it becomes true, like every man for himself, there's no one I'd rather have on my side than him.
1: It's not a bad argument. I'm not going to lie. I will say quickly, though, I love how at the funeral, Otto, to my, despite hating him, to my- You uh, hate him? I I mean, I still think he's a bad guy, but to my observation, gives Damon a genuine sympathies for the loss of his wife. And Damon essentially just goes, fuck off, and keeps walking. But- that was what great. makes you hate him power hungry dickhead just like the rest of them. he's just playing the game better overall right so what you're gonna hate the player and not the game no I, I hate all of them. as i've said this whole podcast there's no one that i root for look at my risers and fallers none of them were the main characters like and no.
0: and just your point about his like general genuine sympathy or empathy when Viserys fired him a few weeks back. Yes, he did get caught red-handed trying to install his daughter as queen, but his heartbreak to me feels real. Like when yeah. Viserys questions, you know, like you don't like you box. don't really have my it. back. Yeah. That hurts him. So I do think that he is just sort of like he says to her, this is an ugly game that we play, and I just think that he is If not agreeable, understandable. And I'm going to maintain that take until it eventually kicks me square in the nuts.
1: (laughs) In in the books, I do remember that like, he thinks Viserys is weak and incompetent, but like loves him because he's like, you know what, he's a decent man.
0: Right, exactly. And I feel the same way about you. So I could relate. (laughs)
1: You that have a comeback. That was a good one.
0: That all right. Was- I, think, I, I think that's a perfect note to close out the show. I want to thank my buddy, Brandon, for joining us again this week. Make sure you follow him at great underscore Catsby and all the great work he's doing at Parrot Analytics, which is an international enterprise. Goddamn. We, we
1: out know. here hustling.
0: Yep. Follow Cade at Cade underscore Under and all the work he's doing at comicbook.com. Follow me at Eric Italiano and all the work I'm doing at Pro Bible. Please follow the podcast at PostGradPod. Leave us a review. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Prayers to God. I don't care. Just put the good juju out in the universe. We will talk to you all next week when we're talking a little bit of Andor, House of the Dragon, and maybe some fun Banshees oven sharing interviews in the works for you all. All right. Peace. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.